Okay, um, everyone is certainly welcome. If you're new to Dharma Talks, it's really, uh, there's a, a different way of relating to talks of this kind. They're not really lectures, although outwardly they may appear to be so, of course. Um, it's not about accumulating information. That's easy enough to come by. That's all over the place now, and many of you have lots of it already. Uh, it's more to practice being awake as we undergo this exchange, because after uh, a few words, I'd like to hear what's on your mind, so I'll be doing most of the talk, all the talking for a while, and your job will be to listen. Then when you start talking, then I'll do my best to listen to you. Um, that sounds pretty simple and straightforward, but listening is a very high art to really listen. If you uh, listen into how you listen, you may see how much you don't listen. <laughs> and um, that's, of course, how that art is refined, by seeing the absence of it, seeing all the different ways in which the mind agrees with something, then disagrees with something, compares it, well, the Tibetans say this, and over at the Zen Center, I like the way they said it better, and, and all that may be true. But then in that moment, you typically we go off on a train, and it takes us away from here. So whatever I say isn't anywhere near as valuable as you using this opportunity to develop this ability to pay attention in the process of 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 deal of looking at the Dharma together. Uh, recently, in our office, people uh, informed me of something that I really didn't know. This series of talks, it's sometimes been called self-knowing, a quiet passion. It's also now, uh, ju- it's really the same stuff, but I changed it slightly, uh, learning how to live, self-knowing in action. Uh, the first talk w- grew out of 9-11. It was uh, an attempt to uh, bring what we do here to bear on what was coming up in nine, um, at 9-11. That's 2001. So I've really been blabbing a lot on this theme. <laughs> now, it may sound like I have infinite depth uh, of what I have to say about this theme, but uh, if I could level with you, it's just that I'm lazy. And if I had to make up, a, you know, typically I used to, I would make up a a different title every time we had a new brochure. And then by the time it became time to give the talk, I wasn't interested in that at all. So I just felt it was easy to just give some, it's just, I guess, a generic brand. So much of how I see uh, my own practice and, um, and, and an approach that perhaps will be of some help for some of you uh, is, has to do very much with the urgency of self-discovery and self-understanding. Um, And in order to do that, a certain interest, aliveness, energy, passion is needed. Uh, Nothing worthwhile really happens unless there's energy. Um, And self-knowing, or we're much more used to the term self-knowledge, as used here is not exactly the same as you might, uh, might think it is. It's not accumulating insights about yourself the knowing, so that's why I prefer the term self-knowing to self-knowledge. Knowledge 
just as knowledge is accumulated, the whole library is full of Buddhist knowledge. Now we have a library on the next level for those of you who are new. Uh, and there are larger libraries than that. That's accumulated knowledge of many of research and different yogis and scholars and so forth. Well, we're our own. We also have a library inside ourselves, a huge book. And it, the whole book is a story of, of myself. And we wrote it, we edited it, we published it, we star in it, uh, we own it, and we even think we are it. Okay, So uh, that's self-knowledge, it's an accumulation. And a lot of what the problem is is that we meet the present moment through those accumulations. And we think that we're really seeing life clearly. You're entitled to have that view. But from a dharmic point of view, we're meeting what is happening to us through yesterday's eyes. And if you have a lot of yesterdays, I certainly do, then there's a lot of accumulation. And it's, it seems awfully convincing that you see things as they are. But as you start to pay attention, as the mind becomes calm, you can begin to see all of your views, opinions, likes, dislikes, um, positions, ideologies, beliefs, uh, which are lightning-like in the way in in which they get between us and our experience about ourselves and about what's happening to us. Um, What I've uh, attempted to convey is that uh, self-discovery or this a voyage into ourselves, uh, first of all, it is not as, uh, it's not simply, it's not something that simply happens on a cushion or a bench or a chair or in special places or in the woods or a cave. That as we using it here, and, I, and that's what I've been doing for all these, I guess I have to say years, uh, is to show that self-knowing can happen anywhere. In fact, the practice is designed to help you see that and more and more to do that. Yet, uh, coming together as we have this evening, just sitting quietly together, is very precious, and especially as you get, uh, get the knack of it, Uh, I don't think you need to be convinced that it's a very useful human activity. What I'd like to do tonight, um, to begin with, there'll be a bit of history of Buddha Dharma, just a little bit. Perhaps also somewhat oversimplified, uh, but as an attempt to bring bring us into what's happening now for us in this life, right now. Um... When I was, I, I spent a fair amount of time with a, a uh, one of my teachers in Thailand in the forest tradition there uh, is a master named Ajahn Buddha Dasa. And um, when it was time to come back to the States, I asked him for some, if he had any hints. I'd already been teaching, we already had started the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And he said, look, I was just in India for two weeks. I've spent the rest of all of my life in this forest. He came when he was a very young man as a monk. And he said, I don't, I've never been to America. I don't know, but I know a bit about the history of, uh, of how the Dharma spreads. And I can tell you, give you a few general, just one general idea, notion, that is in order to be effective, you have to be both very conservative and very radical. And they both have to work together. They have to collaborate. He doesn't mean politically. Um, conservative in the sense of, he, this is uh, as, as best I can remember our conversation, 
He said, do you value what these teachings? I said, well, I didn't come all the way here and sit. It's not really the Thai forest tradition. That's a misnomer. It's a jungle. Forests are places where you go on a picnic. (laughs) Jungles are places where you're sitting and a snake slides by you. Uh, So it should be the Thai jungle tradition, but okay. (laughs) So I said, I didn't come all these thousands of miles and eat food that is... uh, very, very different. We found out we had been eating insects in our... Well, it's good I didn't know it at the beginning. Um, I understand quite nourishing, a lot of protein, but at any rate. Uh, so, of course, I value it. That's why I'm here, and that's what I, I'm doing my best to, uh, to develop myself in it, through it. Uh, and then he said, okay, then there's something worth conserving. Uh, what if it's something that's really valuable, then you want to conserve it. Now, in this case, what is it that we'd be conserving? Because you have, uh, as the Dharma has spread, originally, as you probably all know, maybe you don't. If you're very new, you may not know this. It originated in India. But it moved all through Asia, and now it's in the modern world. It's in the West. Um, you could say the Four Noble Truths. Not you could say, I will say it. Uh, because all Buddhist schools agree on that. They have sometimes slightly different ways of coming at it, that there is suffering in life, not that all of life is suffering, but it is here. And the challenge is to know it, if you're suffering to know that you are. Uh, there's a cause, and there's a, and it's sort of a, the cause is what is called unskillful living and has an unskillful outcome, meaning it's harmful to you and to others. Then... That's the second noble truth. There's a cause. The third is cessation, uh, which means there's an end to the suffering, particular suffering, and then, for some, big ending. And the the means to accomplish this is the practice, the path, the eightfold path. Um, so that has to be protected. It has to be understood. It has to be put into practice. It has to be lived. Uh, other notions that seem... Uh, crucial to this is uh, the Buddha's initial statement that all he's teaching is suffering and the end is suffering. That's psychological suffering. Uh, And also, um, if you read the original teachings of the Buddha again and again and again, uh, two themes emerge. There are many themes, but these two are, if not the most popular or frequent, uh, they certainly are among the most frequently uttered themes. It has to do with that we live in a world that's in constant flux. Everything is changing. And it's changing in ways that are uncertain. So that there's a, you, you, there's a lack of a certain kind of stability. And this is the nature of life, whether you look internally at your own mind, at your own body, or you look externally at the heavens or at uh, civilizations. Wherever you look, that's the nature of life, is that it changes. And it seems to have roll on. It has a lawfulness all its own. And that the Buddha talks about over and over and over again. And then the other is how to live skillfully. Skillful, as I'm using it here, is is synonymous with wisdom. So how to live skillfully in a changing world. Uh, That's our challenge. So what is happening to us now is a lot of what we're hearing is about that, Um, mainly on an economic level, but also on a political level, international relations and so forth. But the challenge has always existed. It's not new. 
It's just this is our particular challenge. Otherwise, this is actually the world we live in. It really is happening in this way for each one of us. And we're all inhabiting some piece of that world. We're not apart from it. So if you look at the teachings of the Buddha, now I want to, if you don't mind, bring in a, even if you do mind, because I, I do have control over this. <laughs> I suppose it's a rhetorical device. People just say that. They don't really mean it. With all due respect, you know, that one. Um, I'm going to just pick a few highlights. When the teaching came from, uh, from India to China, uh, the tendency, it was brought by monks, and the, the, the way of Indian monks um, was they were not allowed to, uh, to carry out agriculture. There were all kinds of reasons. No, I, no time to go into that tonight. So monks did not work the land. And remember, this is thousands of years ago, and agriculture was central. So they had to be fed by others because they, didn't, they were not self-reliant in terms of that. Okay. The Chinese couldn't stand it. You know, they just saw these able-bodied men who were not tilling the land and, and taking care of themselves, feeding themselves. And there were periods when different emperors uh, forced monks to disrobe and close down monasteries, destroyed them. Um, they didn't do that to some of the Zen sects because uh, one teacher, a man by the name of ba- uh, Bei Chang, uh, he came up with a, he saw this, and he, and he changed. In other words, what I'm saying is the teaching gets adapted as it goes from culture to culture. Uh, and he said, a day of no work is a day of no eating. And he put the monks to work. So they started farming and growing things and feeding themselves. And in most other ways, very, very similar to what was going on in India. But clearly, as time unfolded, it took on a Chinese coloration. A lot of Taoism came in, some Confucianism. Uh, the essence is still, if you read it carefully, it's still the same. But uh, that form emerged. And uh, this uh, Pei Chang, when he was very old and feeble, uh, continued to work out in the fields. And his students uh, thought that was ridiculous, and they t- took his tools away. And so he got annoyed and said, if you don't let me work, then so he refused to eat. So they gave him his tools back, and he said, I only have a little bit further more to go. And <clears throat> right now, if, uh, because he, was, he would have died if he didn't eat, he said, the, land, the ground is very frozen and hard, and it'll be really hard for you to dig my grave. He said, so let me work, and then when spring comes, the land will be soft, and then everything will all be happier. So that's what happened. Now, look, I don't know if it's accurate or mythological, but... There's a lot being said there. A day of no work is a day of no eating. Okay. Um, in Japan, there's, you may not have heard of it, but within Dharma circles, a rather famous teaching, which essentially is based on what was learned by a great Japanese master named Dogen when he was in China. He spent five years in China, and it's called Dogen's Instructions to the Cook. Okay, so it's really an application of... Pei Chang's uh, attitudinal change, which at the time was radical, within Buddhism was radical. Um, and there's an extraordinary sutra. A lot of what goes on here is based on it. I was in Zen for eight years, and I, of course, brought back with me some of the things I thought were useful, very useful, in fact. Um, 
So in the instructions for the cook, it's a very detailed, and I, for me it was quite inspiring, uh, their guidelines as your attitude towards, the, towards preparing, cooking, and serving people. Uh, and in it, there was an attempt to show that, uh, I think quite convincingly, that real practice is, has to do with every aspect. In this case, what was emphasized is cooking. So that, for example, if the emperor was coming with a whole bunch of, of famous other uh, officials and you had uh, excellent ingredients, then it was very easy to be inspired and make a delicious meal. But then the next day, the emperor is gone, and they're just some wilted greens and leftover rice, and, you know, uh, and you're not as interested. And so he tried to ch- turn that around and by saying, it doesn't matter what the uh, occasion is or what ingredients you have, can the, fr- can the mind be stable and steady and relate to whatever it is that's in front of you uh, with respect, with appreciation, uh, and with total attention? Uh, he, would, he used examples like you should take care of your, the dishes and pots and the food the way you take care of your eyes. He also said uh, Manjushri, who is uh, kind of an icon for the it's hard to, kind of symbolic of wisdom. That would be the equivalent of wisdom of Manjushri there with a sword. Okay, the sword is to cut through ignorance. Um, this was carved by a, a Korean uh, monk who I knew when I was in Korea. Um, let's see. Help me find my thread. I shouldn't have gone to Korea. Uh, help. Yeah. What? Yes. 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 Okay. Uh, my, he said, if while I'm cooking, while I'm washing pots, if Manjushri, it would be like if Jesus came in while I'm washing pots, I would take my broom and drive him out of the room. Or as, just to, uh, to, to put the accent on, this is what you're doing in this moment. Give it full attention. Um, so you can see where this is going. You know, you, you've heard this in different forms. Now, is any of this in the original teachings of the Buddha? There's an enormous amount that's in the very simple statement that the Buddha makes again and again. But it really has to be flushed out and made concrete where the Buddha says, be mindful while sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. In short, every human posture. In short, there's nothing left out. Now, that in of itself sounds plain, not particularly exciting. All right, be mindful in whatever you do. But then as the teachings move through the different cultures, the different cultures added their own genius and enriched, in my opinion, some of what was said uh, or gave very concrete uh, illustrations. And what was being said here was that uh, you give the fullest quality of attention uh, to whatever it is you're doing in life. And it's not just in so-called important events or uh, activities that have cash value or, uh, you know, we know when we pay attention, very often when we're frightened, danger, or there's something to be gained, money, sex, something, something to get out of, suddenly we're alert. Uh, and what this is saying, there's nothing that's mundane or ordinary or not worthy of full attention. 
So it's encouraging a way of living where you approach whatever you're doing. In this case, it's cooking, but it's meant to be generalized beyond cooking. It, whatever it is you're doing, do it. Or is to wholeheartedly... Now, this sounds uh, very muscular, sort of like, well, what, well, I'm giving a talk now. I better pay attention. Uh, it's relaxed, and it's something that has to be learned because that's not how we live. If you do live that way, whoa, I don't see what you're doing here tonight. <laughs> or come on up and finish the talk. I'll, take your, I'll exchange seats with you. So typically, we're not fully in the present moment. We're either lost in some present, some past that's over, we're making up a future, or we have an ambivalent relationship to what we're working with. We want to get it over with so we can get on to what's really important. Dishes, yuck. Take out the garbage, necessary, but no big deal. Now, what is implicit here, and in some cases explicit in this teaching of, uh, uh, of Dogen, is it's not uh, so much uh, necessarily that the activity of cooking or taking out the garbage or whatever it is you want to plug in, of course, that's, that's what makes up life, these small moments, these of routine, ordinary, that's much of what makes up life. What he's saying is we deform the quality of our life when we aren't paying attention. And what was said was that when you're uh, just divided and you're doing what you're doing, but part of you is there and part of you is somewhere else, uh, the Chinese call that killing life. And when you're fully and wholeheartedly uh, immersed in what you're doing, they call that giving life to life. Now, that, to me, that's not an ideology. I, many of you who I know, you've experienced this. Uh, let's say if you, if you want to live a life of unawareness, full speed ahead. We already are masters of it. We know how to do it. Start comparing those moments when you're on automatic pilot, when suddenly you look up and how did that happen or where did my life go, uh, to those moments when we're awake and sensitive and interested and learn something and perhaps a sense of wonder starts to return to life, a freshness, don't know mind, beginner's mind. These are all terms for coming to life in a fresh way, even if you've done something a million times, how many more times do we have to floss and brush our teeth? <laughs> well, this isn't saying drop that, you've done enough of that, and find some, something else to occupy your interests so that you'll be more interested at night. You can do that, but your dental bill is going to soar. Any dentists here? Okay. Often there is one. All right. And uh, so if you're doing the same thing over and over, which a lot of life is repetitive, that's not the problem. The problem is that because we've done it many times, we're asleep while we're doing it. It's sort of like the body, the teeth get brushed. They're nice and white and shiny and you have a nice, you get from Whole Foods some nice toothpaste that is organic and it doesn't have that slash, you know, and it, all kinds of things that are not in it and it's been used in India for a thousand years and, uh, okay. Uh, but you're not there while it's happening. You're just minimally there, and the teeth are fine, and the dentist says, great, you're doing a terrific job. And while that was happening, you're figuring out something else. So it's, a, it's, it's consistent with the teaching, the original teachings of the Buddha, only it's fleshing out something that grew out of the necessity because the monks, the monastic life dominated Buddhism, and it has up until recently here in the West, in the modern world, uh, 
I don't know what, what, what the future will bring, but right now there's an enormous amount of energy among lay people and much less among monks. It may be that along with many other changes in the modern world, this is a new one. But whether it is or it isn't, this is the, where we find ourselves. Okay, so in that sutra, just building on that, um, those of you who like Zen poetry or some of the, uh, you'll often see things like Zen is uh, uh, chopping wood and drawing water and other, all kinds of very beautiful picturesque statements or there's one famous exchange where no matter what you would ask this master, he would just say, go drink tea. And uh, what they meant, well, there are real meanings. It's not, he's not just trying to avoid you. Um, now remember, these are still monks. So a lot of what they're saying, and it's in a period where physical labor dominates their life, or they're sitting in meditation, chanting or studying, or working with people. Uh, so, but what seems to be left out, as we will we'll get to it in a moment, and it seems like if you read a bit of the history of it, it seems that uh, practice is really about approximating the monastic life, the ascetic life, as much as, you, as possible, because that will help you get enlightened. So again, there's a famous uh, Chinese layman, Layman Peng, who he, he and his family attained enlightenment, especially his daughter. And they took all their possessions, put it on a raft, and sank it. Okay, i.e., we're now so pure that we just we don't need any possessions. So in that is a message that the problem is in having lots of possessions. Well, very often that may be so, but that teaching has in it a monastic coloration, if you follow me, if you follow, if you don't, in a few moments we'll have some discussion, you can, I can tell you exactly what I mean. Um, it's useful and it's and such a, and there's a big thing made out of uh, layman pong and his family, that they sank their thing and that they, the monks would bow to them. When I was in Korea, there was a, uh, one of the top lawyers in Seoul which was also a Zen master. They call it Son over there in Korea. And when he would come to this monastery I was practicing at, he would bow to the monks and they would bow to him. And he would be a beautifully dressed, three-piece suit, uh, immaculate, uh, very much, as they would say, gentleman style. And a, a, a top attorney, he had three children, married, and also a Zen master. It's getting closer to what we're talking about. His life situation was more like ours. Now, if you go back uh, to, at this point, are some of you thinking, well, this history is okay, but I want to know about practice. Um, this is about practice. I hope you see it's about us. Uh, are we practicing this way? Um, Okay, so we have Layman Pong, uh, and uh, we now start, it starts moving. Let's skip a bit. Let's jump from there uh, into the modern world. Okay. Now, we, we find ourselves in a situation where, if you teach here at an IMS, and I've been teaching for a fair number of years, many years, uh, there's real energy among lay people. Some of you must know it. Why are you here? Mm -hmm. And for some people, um, the challenge is, uh, or, or uh, let me back up. Um, one of the reasons CIMC was started, for, for all I know, the main reason, at the, at, at the time I felt when I started it, 
that this was certainly a, a crucial reason, is that I saw that um, <clears throat> one of the things that could happen to us as lay people is that we wind up being neither monks or nuns nor full lay people. In other words, I saw a lot of people not not in jobs that they were whole, fully with, not raising families, not going to the university, but also not fully committed to a meditative life. And just enough to kind of calm down and living from, to get from one long retreat to another. And in a certain sense, avoiding what makes up life for most of us. This is not to standardize. Say every, it's whatever your life is, just as the implication from Dogen, do it. So it's, I'm not telling you how to live, but you already are living it. But what I saw was an avoidance of certain challenges that was not fulfilling for people because there was too much avoidance going on. Uh, so I felt that, and, and one of the reasons that happens is, for those of you who are new, if you really keep doing this and take to it, what can happen is you get become really enamored with the sitting and retreats and coming together like this with like-minded people. And your life then becomes split, divided, where this is where, where Dharma activity happens. This is where the real work goes on. And then, as people used to speak, this was about 25 years ago, after retreats, people would talk about going back to the real world. Uh, and that struck me as uh, rather strange. Uh, I had never had that attitude because my first teacher uh, was an Indian named Krishnamurti, and he started me off with, there's just life, period. And... Sure, sitting, very important. You want to do retreats, great. But it's just life in different forms. It wasn't this life and forget. The rest is cute, it's okay, but this is where it really happens. Now, this is not to deny that the monastic life, uh, the monastic life may very well be, and I think it is, there's no question about it, be designed to maximize breaking through. And if you're really cut out for it, it can be a very, very useful situation. But... Uh, it also presupposes uh, celibacy, a whole bunch of things that many people are uh, not, it's not appropriate for, for many of us, just based on just look at your life. Okay. So uh, CIMC was started, it grew out of a lot of what I've of just, what led up to it. But now, if you heard what I was saying, is daily life was mainly talked about chopping wood, drawing water, having tea, cooking, uh, farming, what about relationship, i.e. people? Now, monastic life has people, but it's highly regulated, and there's an intricate code of, of, uh, of living. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever lived in a Buddhist monastery. I have. If you have a romantic view of it, um, you'd find that a little bit qualified because you'd see that it turns out that wherever we go, there are people. And no matter what their title or whatever cl clothing they may prefer or their hairdo, it turns out they're still a person. And if you put a bunch of people together, no matter what you call them, and no matter what the, the, the books say they should be, and uh, et cetera, uh, you've got problems. You've got people, you've got trouble. <laughs> okay. okay. But they have an ancient code to help them work it out. Now, my own... Um, experience in these things and I think this goes back to ancient times sometimes it's literal and explicit is that many people come to meditation and even become a monk or a nun because whoa it's nuts out there 
you know, those people are nuts. Uh, relationship, I can't do it. Uh, if I'm not married, I want to get married. If I am married, I want to get out of it. You know, uh, sort of like wherever I go, there's something off. And I think, get me to a cave, a forest, you know, etc. Okay. That's okay with me. It's okay with me. But as I look around, that isn't our story, is it? I mean, we find ourselves... Uh, for all I know, the monastic journey will reinstate itself and be just like it's been for thousands of years. But by the way, uh, Buddha, Buddha Dharma, the Buddha's teaching, grows out of an ancient yogic tradition that goes back to Vedic times, thousands and thousands of years before the Buddha. And there have been periods where the great masters will lay people married with families, and if you wanted to study with them, you'd live with them in their families. And you do ordinary things, help out around the house, work, and at the same time you would learn whatever it was. So one strategy is a monastic strategy. And for many people, it's outstanding. But what we need is something that is appropriate for us. And my own feeling is that what has been neglected, of course, has been people, relationship, so that it is the hardest thing for us humans. We fail at it, haven't we? We don't know how to live together. We've done all kinds of remarkable things. The human mind is brilliant. The technological and scientific achievement, extraordinary. Beyond uh, science fiction, when I was growing up, it's way beyond what I thought was science fiction. And it's reality. And it's just taken off. And when it comes to wisdom and compassion, dwarfed. Nothing there. We have not developed very much at all. Uh, we, it maybe it was done with clubs and, uh, you know, and leopard skins and now we have, uh, and we're more dangerous because our brilliance has produced weaponry that can just extinguish us and the planet. We're in the process of doing it. I'm not saying, it's not a doomsday. I don't know what awaits us. But it's very, very clear that for one reason or another, we avoid, this is the hardest thing for humans to do, is to learn how to live together. speak for themselves. Am I, is this just my, um, am I just a miserable, depressed, horrible person, cynical and skeptical? Could be. Could be. But whether you look historically, if you look on the world scene, uh, it's hard being a human being when people don't seem to behave the way you want them to and they don't agree with us and, uh, or us with them. Or There's always something, isn't there? One thing after another. Um, so, the solution is to get me out of here. Okay. What I'm suggesting, and I didn't make this up. If I did, I probably would tell you. I haven't. It's just I'm taking something that's been going on, an issue that's been going on for a long time, but I'm doing my best for us. To, we're in the process of developing this. For example, what Buddha Dasa meant when he said uh, you, have to, uh, conser uh, you have to be conservative and radical. Conservative meant conserve the, there's an essence of these teachings which is timeless. Otherwise, it would be, would it be a waste, it would be useless. There's, uh, the essence of the Buddhist teaching has nothing to do with culture. It has nothing in particular to do with India or any other culture. Uh, those laws are, are universal. Uh, I've been watching, uh, my wife and I are watching um, 
uh, 1970s masterpiece theater, Anna Karenina. And here are people, this is about aristocratic life in Tsarist uh, Russia. And they have everything. And they, they're miserable, you know, constantly tormenting each other, falling in love with the wrong people. They get this. You know, it's just endless. And it just, it's one of the things that comes out of it is like, it doesn't matter. It's sort of like whatever situation it is, we are geniuses is finding ways to make suffering out of it. We can turn it into suffering. We're just great at that. So learning how to live is our challenge. That is the biggest challenge. Everyone extols wisdom. We all think it's fantastic, but you do it. Or we put it on the top of some building on a university. Self-knowing, Socrates said that, he's great. What a, oh, tears come to philosophers' eyes. But we have to do it. Okay. So what I'm trying to say now is the Pei Chang um, took, let's say, the Buddhist teaching of be mindful in whatever you do, he added something to it. He added work, and then it got further enriched. Tea ceremony. Tea ceremony was an attempt when Dharma was, was starting to flag, was starting to thin out and become decadent in Japan. The tea ceremony by uh, a, 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 an eccentric great Zen monk named Ikkyu, he devised, uh, he uh, put energy into tea ceremony. It was already existing in a certain form to try to, bring people to the point where they could use something more accessible to develop wisdom and they could get some refinement in their inner life and outer life. How we, In the tea ceremony, uh, it has a lot to do with staying awake, the real tea ceremony. It's not just ritual, which would be dead. Um, so there have been attempts, but uh, this is something that maybe you know and maybe you don't know. I probably shouldn't say this for those of you who are new, but you'll find out. There have been a lot of people uh, who are so-called, who've been practicing for a long time, and apparently it is possible to do a certain amount of meditation and even be called a master and create a lot of suffering, especially men with women. I don't know if you know that. I'm not trying to... Uh, it's in some way sad, I'm really... And I've tried to understand that because I've worked with some of these teachers, some of them are my teachers, some of my are my peers, and... It turns out that there's, from now it may change as more and more women are becoming teachers, then the men will be the ones who are the casualties. I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. In other words, whoever has the power, once you have the power, you can abuse it if you don't, okay. Um, so for, mainly I have experience with koans and in Korea and Japan, and there are people who master, there are three main sets of koans, hundreds of them, who've gone through all of them and succeeded, and then come over here and create enormous amount of suffering, particularly among women. Uh, and that's because there's one koan that isn't part of their collection. Guess what koan that is? The lady koan. <laughs> it isn't there. Or there may be koans, but it's not actual, just face-to-face, -face, people with each other. So we need a practice that now it's taking the same teaching, but we, ha we have no choice, in my opinion. This, to me, is not some ideological frill that I'm uh, making up because our life is in, we do work. We, we, we do have to make money. We do have children. We do go to university and get degrees, or we don't. We do all kinds of, this is our world. If we don't learn how to, how to do this, then uh, it's hopeless. Or we'll develop something in our meditation. It'll be nice, calming, 
feel it whenever you sit. You can get it's actually not that difficult. You can sit down. Just you can get very good with the breath in out in out in out. It's like pushing a button on an elevator. And a smile comes on your face. You feel very nice and calm. It's not that difficult. Anyone here can do it if you stick with it. Many people get discouraged. Well, I can't help that. Uh, and so you get nice and calm. But then the calmness, just like a cold shower on a hot day, it starts to fade. And then, or it remains, it's a calm, you're calm, but you're still a fool. So it's a, <laughs> so it's a, cal- it's a calm person causing suffering instead of a totally agitated person causing suffering. <laughs> okay, so uh, the way it's been intended by the Buddha is for the calmness uh, to be... Uh, what that really means is developing a refinement of mind, a clarity of seeing, so that the seeing insight, ins- vipassana, see, insight meditation, the seeing becomes more and more clear. Uh, it becomes more accurate. That's, the key, I think, the key word. And you, as the mind becomes clearer, you really see into yourself. You see how you're living. You hear what you're saying. And the possibilities of learning are immense. And at least potentially it can make life very rich and interesting. It's, a, it's just like any art, it can be learned. It's perhaps the hardest art, and for all I know, well, I guess I have a bias, uh, it's the most important art. Uh, because if you don't learn, and I, I don't know if, you ever, if anyone ever perfects it, I'd be amazed if you can. Uh, it's just too complex. Life is much messier than any of the books or the poems or anything I'm saying tonight. Uh, but if you understand that practice includes it, and you start to, just as it, it is quite a learning experience to value cooking. Let's say you, you're not interested in cooking, and you get assigned that. In the monasteries I practice that, you rotate. So you'd spend a couple of months cleaning the toilets. Then you'd help out in the kitchen. Then you'd clean the meditation hall. Then you'd do work in the garden. And that was so that you could, no matter what the situation is, you would, and some of the stuff you liked, and you were happy to, that you got that one, and some you didn't like. And so the challenge was uh, to, to learn from everything that happens to you. Let me give you a concrete example. Uh, see if you can relate to this in your, for your own life. I hope everything I'm saying is about you and me. Um, when I first started teaching at the, when I started teaching at the Inside Meditation Center, when it first started, um, there was always a work period or assigned yogi jobs. That's just a custom. And here too, those of you who have done retreats here, you know that. If you haven't, uh, and we have to keep the place running clean. Uh, we have to get food cooked for the retreat and so forth. It's just sensible, just like running a household. Okay. And I didn't know. Now, I'd, I had had eight years of this kind of attitude that, uh, that work, a day of no work is a day of no eating, that work was as, in other words, life, a practice and living are the same thing, inseparable. That is, you use whatever you're doing as practice, and washing a dish is not less valuable than sitting. It's not more valuable. It's just what your life is in that moment. Okay. So I assumed that people would, were coming and we would, that they had jobs, the yogi jobs, and fine. Then one day I found out, after a number of years of teaching there, that people would come hours early for this would be like a two-week retreat, three-week retreat, or longer, so that they could, because you'd pick your job. 
So people would, there used to be a library where the office is, those you've been out to IMS. And you, what job would you pick? You get a feather duster and you dust off the books, seven minutes. And then you can go outside and frolic and take a nice walk in nature and look at butterflies. And then the people who come later, what's left? Washing pots, hot in the summer. You're sweating. There's, the more you clean, it seems the more pots come in. And your friend is dusting in the, off the books in the, li- in the library, and you have pots. They got done in seven minutes, and you, it seems like you're there for hours. And this is a waste of time. I could be meditating and so forth. So when I found that out, uh, against a lot of resistance, I switched it to uh, first come, first serve. Just whatever time you arrive, you get whatever you're given. In other words, you don't have a choice unless there's a medical reason. Sometimes you can't do certain jobs. So one time, this gentleman, an oral surgeon, which I gather is training beyond being a dentist, uh, a number of years of it, uh, he's assigned cleaning toilets. Okay, the retreat is just beginning. And he refuses to do it. I I didn't know about this. And so the staff very nicely, gently say, "Uh, sorry, but you do have to. Your job is cleaning the toilets. We'll show you how to do it, and here are the implements. He wouldn't even go near it. And they tried many ways, and they said, well, we have to send him up. So I I happen to be leading that retreat, so they send him up to me. So this oral surgeon comes in, and uh, so I I asked him, I said, what's, uh, what's the problem? He says, uh, I'm not going to start. I didn't come here to clean toilets. You know, so I said, well, wh- why? He said, look, I'm an oral surgeon. You know, I didn't come up to this place, pay my good money in order to clean these toilets. And he was really annoyed. I said, but look, you see, there's something valuable to be learned from that in one ear and out the other ear. He didn't want to hear from that. And he, and he assumed that I could back down. I said, well, look, that's part of the practice. And it's an essential part of the practice. And he looked at me cynically. He said, so if I don't do it, what? I said, you have to leave. And I, and I meant it, honestly and truly. And he said, you're kidding. I said, no. Either you do the toilets or we'll give you a complete, we'll give you a complete refund. I said it very politely and sweet. Inside, I was ready to punch him out. But, you know. Uh, if I can give you a personal experience and it's wrong speech, this isn't uh, cable, but I can. Maybe I can get away with it. Uh, when I came to Japan, I, I went on one retreat. I was the only lay person. I had a little th- a three-piece suit because my teacher felt I should really look like a lay person. I didn't wear a suit back home. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I was, the, and there were all these monks, and they were signing jobs, and they assumed because of the way I looked at the time I had been a professor, that they said, uh, "Oh, uh, my name was Byonjo Gosanim. That was my Dharma name, Chinese, I think." So um, then they said, uh, "Oh, Byonjo shit house. You clean shit house." <laughs> so. I didn't care. I had already been through all this, you know, here. And I'd been in the Army. You know, you do a lot worse in the Army. So they were stunned. Okay, now I learned from them that how valuable it is. Now, the oral surgeon did do it. Now, this is one of those few occasions that does have a happy ending. So I'm, I'm really telling you the truth. You know, it doesn't always work out this way. In fact, mostly it doesn't. But this time it did. 
So at the end of the two-thirds of the retreat's gone, and he, I have an interview with him. It's just naturally we see, see people. And I, I, he says, I just want to thank you for, for insisting that I stay on the retreat. He says, I'm doing the toilets. I, had a, I saw the tremendous resistance, how, how much aversion I had, how I hated doing it, and I saw why. And I said, what? What happened? What did you, what did you learn? And he said, well, I learned that part of, a large part of why I got a degree to be an oral surgeon is to cover up a feeling of being tremendously inadequate. And that uh, was necessary for me to feel good about myself. And cleaning toilets is something that maybe other people who don't have education, they do that. But I do this only. I never do that. Uh, and I saw that, and it was very painful but it started to lose its power as I was mindful of it and as the days unfolded. And he says, and now uh, it's fine. Okay, in Dharma terminology, he's a little bit more free. He got free because that attitude isn't limited to the shithouse, excuse me. Uh, I'm sure it's carried over into other more subtle places where there are nuances of the same dynamic at work. So self-knowing is in, is in those moments, feeling the resistance say the, the teachings are, are simple, not easy. Whatever it is you're doing, just do it. Really do it. Out of respect, not a grim deterrent while you just do it. It's not the army. In the army you do that and the sergeants don't give you, said Dogen said this. They don't, <laughs> <laughs> I can't say the language they used, but they just tell you to bup, 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 do it. Um, so in the process of doing anything, you can learn about yourself. And, uh, and you can use that opportunity to, lib- to free yourself. The Buddhist teaching is the practice of liberation. And what we're liberating ourselves from is from ourselves. All of our, if it's a changing world and we're constantly fixated, and another, other terms that all the Buddhist schools agree on is greed, hatred, and delusion. No doubt you've heard that. It seems also to be not out of fashion. Now you hear talking heads on CNN. They're all talking about how the financial problems do to greed. Okay, and we're part of it, right? We, we had this cash cow that we thought would just go on forever. Well, it turns out it doesn't. So do we learn from it, or do we just get grim and feel disappointed and whine? And uh, if you're a Dharma practitioner, no matter what happens, you land on your feet. You turn it around, and you use it to help you get free. If you have a reaction... That's showing you that, to some degree, you're unfree. Okay. So the toilet was very important for this gentleman. For someone else who is comfortable with done 100 t- times clean toilets, uh, they do it, and they same instruction, but they might not learn anything new because they, they're already at home doing that. They could do it wholeheartedly. So when we're doing something we love to do, it's easy to be wholehearted. So bring that into relationship, and I think... Uh, Oh, this is sort of what they do on TV to hold your interest. Next time I give a talk, we'll go into a relationship. Because <laughs> that is what people really want to know about. I don't have any answers. It's as hard for me as it is for you. Uh, but I'm in there pitching, and I, we're not helpless. Um, relationship is exactly the same thing. Uh, Ed mentioned... Uh, relationship as mirror. It's one way to, if you have to devise some language, it's the best I can do. 
when you're in the presence of another person, any person, um, we have a reaction. Uh, as soon as we meet someone new, we're already noticing uh, two socks and a wrong color socks don't match his shirt and his hair is too long or it's too short or I don't something about him that I don't like. You know, so we haven't even opened our mouth yet, and you know already the mind has manufactured something about this person. And they're doing it to us. If you know the person well, then you have a whole archives of videotapes about who this person is. Okay. Uh, so in the process of being in the presence of someone else, if you but you have to change your attitude radically, and the attitude is, let's say, uh, the. Let's say it's someone you know intimately. You've lived with them for many years, a partner, a wife, children, parents, so forth. Um, there's, something is brought up. You may, as you pay attention, as you bring mindfulness into, into those situations, you may see that the mind has all kinds of um, images, conclusions about this person, that they're unexamined, and that when you meet, meet them, and some of them are even very positive conclusions, you don't really see them. Because that very, very subtle uh, assumption, conclusion, image is between you and the person. Moreover, you have an image of yourself, and the other person's doing it to you as well. So we call a relationship, it's questionable. What is, what is a relationship? Who's relating to who? You know, what's going on here? Is it two images talking to each other um, with all kinds of assumptions and prejudices and uh, conclusions? and etc. Now, if you make that part of your practice, you'll see this. It's not mysterious. You can see it. And as it falls away, because something magical happens, those of you who've been practicing for a while, you don't try to get rid of it. To Let's say have an ideal, well, a Buddhist should always be kind, compassionate, gentle, against war, eat only vegetables, you know, on and on, a long kind of a never drink, don't have affairs, uh, on and on, all these kinds of things. It's not a should. Self-knowing is about learning. Wisdom is you learn. And so as you begin to see, each moment teaches you. It's self-knowing. The value of self-knowing is in that moment, and then it has no value. Let it go. It's not to be stored away like a chipmunk stores away. It's, that's its value, in that you saw something in that moment. Sometimes it can be profound, sometimes not. And as that falls away, the mind is a little bit clearer. With practice, the mind can become quite clear. And then... What you, how you relate to that person or whatever it is, is more of a response. A reaction is mechanical. It comes out of our conditioning. It has, we can't help ourselves. We might think we're being spontaneous and free and this is my personality, I'm being myself. But if you look, if you start paying, watching the mind, you'll see a lot of it is, it's a machine. We, we're heavily programmed. And it just repeats itself. Some of us have been nicely programmed. We're kind and this and that. But it's still a program. As you watch the programming, the programming gets weaker. And then there's a, you're, you're more intimate with yourself. Because that's between you and you. And then if you're more intimate with yourself, you're more into the other per, intimate with the other person, of course. So we're taking the teaching from, it's gone a long way, at least this evening, from the Buddha, just be mindful in all postures, and the Chinese say, yeah, and that includes farming too, like it or not. And then it's gone into cooking, and it's even gone into the toilets. And 
and now the part that's been left out, possibly because it's been in the hands of monks and nuns, uh, life as we know it. So this way of looking at practice is there's no separation between what we call living and what we call practice. Uh, Now, at first, that won't be convincing because you're learning techniques and methods. And my experience is that many people who show up to meditation centers like this are exhausted emotionally. That is, you're maybe in work that's unfulfilling or you're frightened of being laid off or there's a marital problem or there's always something. And if you've been on the planet a number of years, where your nervous system is worn down and you just come to a meditation center, I don't want to hear all this stuff you're giving on, dropping on these people tonight. Just tell me what to do. Let me do it and then I'll be great, right? No. Okay, we do it. Just breathe in and out. If the, if the mind wanders from the breath, come back again and again. Okay, in, out, in, out, in, out. Oh, I do feel better. Okay. This, it's about learning. It's about understanding. Insight is a way of seeing more deeply. Um, you cannot understand what the Buddha is saying and t- his teachings without understanding your own mind and heart. Mind here is not, li- I'm not limiting it to thinking. Uh, otherwise, it's just words. You're just getting the Buddha's words about something. You could get anyone else's words. There are plenty of wise folks who've been been around. Their teachings are useful. This is those teachings in this approach are pointing to us. And there's really mainly one direction they're pointing to: you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And also me. Uh, In other words, if these teachings have any significance, then. by reflection, by paying attention, by sensitivity, by an openness to it, then it should be helping you to understand how you're living. And in the process of learning how to live, that's a refinement comes in. Life gets refined because you're paying attention and you're interested in learning how to live. If you're not interested in this art, it's not going to develop. We all learn something just by being alive. You know, the University of Hard Knocks, we learn a bit. But this is, a, is, this is asking much more. So it's trying to say that daily life needn't be inferior to sitting in a, on a mountaintop or in a cave. If you have an opportunity to do that, by all means, because certain things can be accomplished there. But if you think that's all you're going to do, if that's all you're going to do, great. But most of us aren't. Maybe none of us in this room will. We come down from the mountain. And in fact, in China, in Japan, in Korea, in Vietnam, uh, the monastic life was, we'd alternate between being in the monastery and coming out of it and, and just being with people in the marketplace and then going back in and out. And I would say that's what CIMC is. It's a sanctuary. You come in, you learn certain skills. It's nice to be around people, to sit in silence together. It's very, very helpful. And then by intent, we, this is not a residential center. There are only a couple of people who can live here. And that's intentionally. Uh, and then we throw you out. Say, okay, fine, you learned some skills here. Now go back to your, comp- your work situation, your whatever, whatever your life is. And in a sense, test it in the fire of your life, just your life. I'm not telling, I wouldn't dream of telling you how to live. It's just a matter of however you are living, uh, pay attention and see how you actually live. That's the key word, actually. Not some conclusion about how you live. Okay, that's, uh, now it's going to be your turn to do some work around here. Uh, you don't have to clean out a toilet, but you have to start um, drawing upon what's going on in you. Those of you who have to leave, pl- please.
opinions and judgments. I see an inability to let that that, that to let that person be who she is. That's very very hard for me. I, I have all that knowledge, but I can't figure out. This is not about figuring anything out. So I I don't know what to do with it. I sometimes say this is just my call on. You know. Yes, that's I, true. Okay. And I'm, so I'm not quite sure how to work with that. Yeah, that's, that's what I was getting at. In other words, as the journey has moved through manual labor, from monks doing nothing to monks chopping wood, drawing water, drinking tea, uh, etc., now uh, what you're saying, that's exactly our challenge. Well put. Um, you have a... Um, and archives of experience. So you have a lot of conclusions about yourself in regard to this person and who this person is. So when you meet, you might be trying to be nice, trying to be tolerant, trying to be sensitive, trying to soften all that. That's all an impersonation. Do you see what I'm getting? Yeah. Now that's part of being socially polite and so forth. Now maybe some of that is necessary. If we all told each other exactly what, what's on our mind, the world would probably look worse than it is already. You know, just... Um, but what I'm suggesting, the practice would be uh, throw away all of your accumulation, but it's not push them away, is that when they come up, see them. Just as you can experience an in-breath and an out-breath, or when you're doing walking meditation, you feel the foot touch and you experience, or any other familiar uh, expression of I know you've been practicing for a while. Okay, this in principle is no different. It's just much more subtle, and we have had no encouragement or very little or experience, uh, we're, we're, we have a lot of experience being um, dominated by our past. Whereas the, the past has immense authority over us, and it tells us how to be. And we, we think we're being spontaneous, but I think you're beginning to see you're not. Mm-hmm. You can't help it. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so you always, in this, this approach, you always start where you are. And where you are is exactly where you des- what you describe. If you can, at least temporarily, lay down any ideals of how you should be or how you'd like to be or wouldn't it be nice if I were. Then you'd be, I don't know, good girl, good Buddhist, good friend, good sister, good whatever it is. Okay, and it doesn't mean you have to blab about it all the time, but while you're in, so every time you meet this person, they can teach you much more than the Buddha can because they're pushing buttons, right? And some of those buttons are, they're engraved, Okay, so uh, this, the path of self-knowing is you're always beginning with yourself as you are. Now, to make it a little bit more, give it some texture in real life, let's say I'm you and you're the, you're the person and I have a problem with you. I don't, okay? We don't know each other well enough to. <laughs> you know, let's, we get to know each other and, I'm, you know, then, then you'll be telling someone else about me. Okay. Um, so that let's say uh, I'm attending to you because you're speaking. Okay. We're having lunch together or doing something together. We're old friends, and yet I have this. And while I'm attending to you, with practice, you can, re- you can develop. It's a skill that can be developed if you practice it. You don't lose touch with your reactivity. So I'm attending to you, but I'm still in touch with what you, your presence brings up in me. You say something, the same old... I don't know, I don't know. You know Obama's not that great. You know, I mean, and, and you're an Obama maniac. <laughs> and you feel, uh, 
And he said, well, you, you're entitled to your point of view, but you don't really mean it. You know, okay. So, okay, so do you see what I'm getting at? Now, sometimes it's like the tide going in and out. Sometimes I'm mainly with you, but I haven't lost touch with myself. Sometimes, let's say I have a strong reaction. I'm mainly in touch with that, but I haven't lost touch with you. Now, sometimes, of course, this... If you, it's a new skill. It'll break down, and you'll just fall into the same old thing, and then maybe the mind will be discouraged. Oh, this is so hard to do. I can't do this. Then you watch that, discouragement. See, this approach to practice is so simple-minded that everyone sitting here, you're far too intelligent for these instructions. That's the problem. Our job is to dumb ourselves down. This is Vipassana for dummies. Aren't there a whole series of books? If I was more enterprising, I could write one. But I just, I'm lazy. Okay. So, um, so it's, it's, beginning, it's, it's meeting your friend uh, as if for the first time. Now, all of the record, recordings from the past is not like you now become an amnesiac or a prefrontal lobotomy patient. Not at all. It's all there. But it's not, it starts losing its potency. Do you see? And, you can, and, and it does not by trying to, to weaken it, but by seeing it. Awareness, mindfulness, whatever language you like, is an energy, and it has tremendous power. Seeing energy, let's say in that moment you suddenly see that you have a conclusion about your friend, and it's familiar to you, or an image of her. Uh, seeing, inner seeing, uh, or even seeing out- outwardly, seeing is, is an energy. Mindfulness is not just a word. It, whatever it touches, I'm making it external, but it could be internal. Look, have you had the experience when you're really mindful of the breath? You're not trying to change the breath. It's not pranayama. You're not uh, controlling the breathing. But you, just by being aware of it, something happens to the breath, and it's usually beneficial. Or when you're aware of, of certain emotions, and if you're really able to sustain a little bit of mindfulness, some of the, the emotion becomes less dangerous if it's a negative emotion. Okay, So you have to take it on as a practice, and that means a bad situation is a good situation. So the next time, when are you going to see this person next? On Friday. Great. When, when, for, what time? Noon. Noon. Just before that, you know, just jump up and down and, you know, click your heels and yippee, I'm going to see X. And it's a good idea to prepare yourself because this is a challenge. And she's probably, the old machinery will go into effect because it's years of conditioning. Okay. And understand, oh, and it's not that you're seeing her as an object. That what am I doing? I'm just using her to practice and to get liberated. She's just dead meat there. And it actually can improve your connection with her because if, you, if this stuff starts losing its potency, you're going to be more intimate with her. It's going to be more honest. Now, I'm not promoting an ideal, and here's why I say this. It's very important because sometimes this question comes up with people who are having trouble in relationship or marriages. And... This will show you the truth. And sometimes it means that people should get divorced. And sometimes it means that they can stay together and learn a way of really living together in, in a, a, a wonderful way. So awareness will just show you what is. That's the whole beauty of it. Do you, do you see? So please, starting, uh, how lucky you are. I wish I had someone like that coming up soon. Well, you said one great thing that's very helpful. Uh, what, the rest of it was, what, a waste of <laughs> Exactly. Um, because I used to think that if I was with myself, then I just wasn't listening, or what's the point of being there? Yeah. But that you can do the two things 
Okay, that's another point. The reason I'm going, because this is about all of us, especially sometimes one, uh, one uh, very useful approach of, of Vipassana is you're focused on objects. You know, you're here, then here in the body, let's say. And it's very moving from one object to another. Then when someone says, how about externally, then it feels like you're trying to do two things at the same time. But there's another kind of awareness which is all-inclusive, comprehensive, global. You know, and uh, it's, you're doing it now. It, in other words, you're aware of me, but you, there are other things. If a, a loud truck goes by, you're going to hear it. Okay? So, yes, just uh, relax a little and let your awareness... Uh, there are really no inside and outside, but it sure feels that way. Yeah. Let me. Know how it turns out, <laughs> and you probably sue me if it gets worse. But <laughs> please. It's a different tradition. It would be. It's an enigmatic. For example, what is the sound of one hand clapping? You can't solve it rationally. It's to kind of throw a monkey wrench into the rational mind so that, for example, what did, what did, your, what did, what was your, what did your face look like even before your parents were born? Okay, so the rational mind will just feel terrible. It can't figure it out, whereas it's been spending its life figuring a lot of no, it. can't logically. You can, and then the answer will be the, the teacher will just ring a bell, get out. You know, in the end. Okay, so there's a way in which you, you, it incapacitates, it sort of short circuits the rational mind, and it takes you to clear seeing. It's just another method. We don't teach it here. Yeah. Please. What makes this night different from all other Passover? Uh, okay, Passover, uh, is there a question here? Because otherwise I'm going to make up stuff. What? It's the question for all of us. Passover, for those of you who are not uh, uh, the Jewish uh, ethnic uh, persuasion or whatever, uh, it, am I correct in this? I, I think I, I was born into an Orthodox home, but I'm very far away from it. Um, I'm teaching Passover? Okay, I don't know, but I'll just tell you what my response is to what you're saying, is that my memory of it is that it's a celebration of getting free from slavery uh, and uh, from being enslaved to the Egyptians. And there are all kinds of ways, foods that are very bitter to remind us of what it was like to be slaves and so forth. Now, on one level, that's outer slavery, which is an abomination. No human being should be slaves to any other human beings. Okay? But uh, even in the Jewish teachings, not even, in the what are called esoteric Jewish teachings, it's really about inner slavery. So they're both needed. In other words, if, if a person is enslaved outwardly, then there has to, that has to be taken care of. It, this is not to neglect the outer world. It might even help you do better at it. But is that what you're getting at? Please. What's the question? Why is this night different from all other? Oh. But this night. Oh, I, I could, I, I could answer that my own way. But go ahead. It's like you say, you can't step into the same stream twice. That's right. And so, in a sense, this night is different from all other. But so is every other night. And yes, because in fact, so is the next moment. Yeah. You can't step into the same moment. The moment is that it is you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this was, as you know, said by a Greek philosopher. 
probably it's still, you can't do that. Now, what the Buddha would add is the person stepping in to the stream. It isn't the same stream, but that person also isn't the same person because everything is in constant flux. Everything is changing. And if you, if you meditate, you can't miss it. It's just so obvious. Is that okay? <laughs>
which when we don't do that, that energy is available to us, and then we could use it. So it's learning when to use thinking, and to begin with, we, are, we need much more help in learning how to... Be, is the difference between thinking and mindfulness of that thinking is happening clear to you? Because it's all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in practice, thinking is happening, and if you, if you identify with it, then you make thinking. You're thinking. Okay. And typically we believe in our thoughts, or at least a lot of them, and then that propels us into action. And sometimes the actions, it seems like we're doing it, whereas the thoughts have immense authority over us. And they tell us, that, that's, do that, kill that person. And then we kill the person. What did I do? And it, so when you start examining it, you, if you're aware that thinking is happening, you'll see that thoughts are, don't have very much power. They're poor little creatures. They're like homeless and rootless. They come up, and the power they have is because we identify with them. And some of, some, certain thoughts, like, I'm an American, proud to be an American. We may have had that thought buttressed by emotion for many, many years. That's a powerful thought, okay? Unexamined, okay? Again, I'm not advocating one way or another, but what, what can happen is um, then that takes some of the potency out of thought. And so that it is, we're not slavishly, we're not enslaved to thought. And thought makes time. It makes up a future. Thought is the past. And all there is is the present. So a lot of what meditation is about is coming to timelessness. Timelessness simply means fully being in the present moment. There is no such thing as the past. And there is no such thing as the future. Those are ideas. And when they happen, memories happen, but they happen now. And when you make up an idea of what the future is going to be, you're making it up now, so all there is is now. And that's why all this proliferation of books, all about now, power of now, voice of now, now, be here now, because uh, we, we're not. Anyone? Is that okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.